on February 13th, no, February 13th, on September 13th, I don't know why this, a few months ago I said something about it being, or weeks ago I said it was April or something is August, I don't, I don't know what it is, I can't get these months straight, this is Sunday, right, on September the 13th will be our fall launch, we will go back to two services that day, and so the first service will start at 850 We'll have Bible classes at 10.10, and the second service will start at 11.10, just like before, okay? The one big difference is that on that day, on September 13th, there is going to be a barbecue following the second service. It may, it, we'll, we'll announce this next week for finality's sake. It could be that the barbecue will actually start during the second service for those who came to the first. So those who normally come to the first right now, you're thinking, all right, we get to eat early. And maybe even get the choice piece of meat, kind of like with the Lord's Supper this morning, the choice piece of meat before those second service people get it. But we'll see. Anyway, we'll see how all that goes. You'll get all the final details here in the next uh, few days. Uh, by an email, and we'll announce it next Sunday as well. I look forward to the fall launch. God's going to bless us richly in the fall of 2015. So keep all of that in mind for February, or February, <laughs> for August 13th. I, 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 yeah, yeah, right. I know for August 13th. No, really, September 13th. You know what's happening is that I have a grand, uh, grand baby due in February. That's why February is on my mind. We just found this out a few days ago. So my son Ryan and his wife Jessica are pregnant. Um, I hope I can get that straight. It is Jessica. Okay, and so she's going to have the baby. And then in February, they're going to have a child and we're looking forward to that. So that's probably why February is on my mind. We also had a great life group leaders uh, barbecue the other night. And I'm excited about our life groups. We've got, uh, it looks like as many or not, maybe perhaps more uh, life groups than we've ever had before. And uh, I'm excited about the curriculum and look forward to how God's going to bless us in the next uh, fall with that as well. So be ready on September 13th to sign up for life groups in addition to uh, coming to the barbecue and all the events that are going to take place at the fall launch. It may be that you know what ideology means. It may be that you don't. I'm going to explain ideology in just a moment. But in the meantime, world ideologies with reference to cows. Feudalism. You have two cows, your Lord takes most of the milk. That's an ideology. Pure socialism. You have two cows. The government takes them and puts them in a barn with everyone else's cows. You have to take care of all the cows and the government gives you a glass of milk. Fascism, you have two cows, the government takes both, hires you to take care of them, and sells you the milk. Not a very good situation. Pure communism, you share two cows with your neighbors. You and your neighbors bicker about who has the most ability and who has the most need. Meanwhile, no one works, no one gets any milk, and the cows drop dead of starvation. Russian communism, you have two cows, you have to take care of them, but the government takes all the milk. You steal back as much milk as you can and sell it on the black market. Cambodian communism. You have two cows. The government takes both and shoots you. Okay. For those of you, you've got to be older to get that one, I think, to get that one and understand what ha- went on in Cambodia. A dictatorship. You have two cows. The government takes both and drafts you into the army so that you can enforce all the government's rules about owning cows. 
pure democracy. You have two cows. Your neighbors vote to decide who controls you, who controls your cows, and who gets the milk. Representative democracy, which is probably what we have here, certainly in the United States, this is the case. You have two cows. Your neighbors pick someone to vote on your behalf about who gets the milk. And then there's a bureaucracy. You have two cows. At first, the government regulates what you can feed them and when you can milk them. Then it pays you not to milk them. Then it takes both, shoots one, milks the other, and pours the milk down the drain. Then it requires you to fill out forms accounted for the missing cows. And then finally... Oh, uh, sorry, not finally. What month is this? (laughs) You don't have any cows. The bank will not lend you money to buy cows under capitalism because you don't have any cows to put up as collateral. (laughs) Pure anarchy, you have two cows. Your neighbors form a mob and try to take your cows and kill you. And then finally, surrealism. You think you have two giraffes. The government requires you to take harmonica lessons. I thought that was the best by far. (laughs) Okay. We are indeed talking about idealism this morning. Or, I can't get anything straight. We are indeed talking about ideology this morning. I don't know what's wrong with me. This is is not a great day for me. Can you tell? We are talking this morning about ideology. And it's defined like this. This. A set of conscious and unconscious ideas which make up one's goals, expectations, and motivations. An ideology is comprehensive, normative vision, meaning that it's a set of standards that are followed by people, government, and or other groups that is considered by them the norm or the way things should be. It is for you a perspective or presupposition about the way things should be in society. And so all of these things that we looked at before, maybe not the last one, but capitalism and pure anarchy and representative democracy and bureaucracy, etc., those are all, in some sense, ideologies. And you think to yourself, what is it that any of this has to do with the gospel of Jesus? Unfortunately, there are a lot of times when this has a great deal to do with the gospel of Jesus because we ourselves as Christians allow these things to impact us. You know, it happened for the first time in about 313 when the Roman Emperor Constantine became a Christian. And whether you know the specifics of the story or not, you do know this. You know that after Constantine became a Christian... And the Roman Catholic Church really began to flourish as the Roman Catholic Church. That Christianity was in one sense never the same again. Something changed about our faith when in 313 an edict was established accepting Christianity. In fact, what happened was basically this. Before this... Christianity and Christians had been persecuted and all of a sudden it was the official religion of the state. We went from being those who were being burned at the stake to the stakeholders. Those who all of a sudden were in control. And there was a sense in which things again have never been the same. It's interesting that the Roman emperor, Constantine, who actually... made this edict in 313, in 325 was a major player 
in a conference that decided the official doctrine of the Trinity for the church. Think about that. The emperor had a major voice in deciding what was going to be the doctrine of the church with reference to the Trinity. Now, the fact is, it's nice not to be persecuted, but the alliance between the church and the state worked to change us. And all of a sudden, it became beneficial to be a Christian, both politically and economically. And so literally millions of people became Christians as part of their civic duty. And it was easy to be a Christian. And Christians became now in a position of advantage in the state. Unfortunately, what we were as Christians became controlled by Roman ideology. Well, for the next 1,500 years, things didn't change a whole lot with that respect. If you were aligned with the government, it was good for you and there was no persecution. But I think a question has to be asked, and that is, is it a good thing when Christianity is aligned with government or with a particular political or economic perspective? And I don't know if we should answer that too quickly. Like in one sense, the obvious answer is, well, no, that wouldn't be good. But wouldn't it be kind of nice to think for a moment that our government could actually be Christian? What if the whole government of Canada was based entirely in Christianity? What if everything that we believed in, the government believed and practiced? What if the government said, we are as a nation going to honor Christ? And in fact, we're going to do so along biblical lines. We're going to read the Bible and we're going to do what the Bible says we should do both as a people and as a nation. And it will become government policy for us to have just exactly that. Well, in one sense, that seems like it could be kind of exciting. But I wonder about what happens to Christianity when it becomes too easy to be a Christian? Is it not possible that in the midst of becoming too easy to be a Christian, that it also becomes too easy to compromise as a Christian? And pretty soon, what we would like to think of as simply a Christian nation may end up in a completely different place. And if you look south of the border, and I can talk this way this morning because I'm an American, at the same time being a Canadian. There are times when that is exactly what has happened. When there has been that kind of alliance between government and people. Or at least they think that's the case. And while they're trying to be free from any kind of ideology that's going to dominate their Christianity, it seems to me like it doesn't always work. It's interesting. You know and I know that there's going to be an election here within Canada in a little while. There's going to be an election in the United States for president in 2016. What is it that is going to control the choices we make politically when those opportunities come up? Will there be some sense of a, an ideology of something that comes from other than just the pure Christianity that you and I are devoted to 
that is going to dominate the decisions that we make. Sometimes those decisions do get based in more than just our faith. And so it's easy at times to become interested in how the economy's doing. In fact, it's easy to get interested in how the economy is doing specifically for me as opposed to how it's doing for you or you. I get really interested in whether or not the economy or the government is going to put more meat on my table. And in the midst of that, sometimes I make what I would call, in essence, selfish even decisions about politics and about ideology because ultimately I'm being controlled by something other than purely my faith. And again, I think that's happened again and again and again throughout the course of history. When people try and align government with faith, we end up so often with governmental decisions controlling the church rather than the church actually controlling governmental decisions. And when it happens, it seems to me as though the faith is distorted. Many people don't know that there was widespread support for Christians among the policies of Nazi Germany. And that ultimately there was even an alliance between the Christian church and Nazism that contributed to the Holocaust. One of the things that Hitler specifically did was he went to church leaders. Hitler went around to the church leaders and asked them for their support for the policies that he was constructing so that Germany could, in fact, dominate the world. Now, just think about this. What if the government of Canada, and sometimes I I wonder if the United States doesn't head a bit in this direction, but what if the government of Canada said, we're about to take over the rest of the world and we'd like all the Christian support to do so? Would you please support us as we attempt to take over the rest of the world? That seems a really strange kind of request. Like you kind of think, what is going on here? How could that possibly be? But that's exactly what happened in Germany as Hitler sought the support of the church for what he was trying to do. And the horrible, sad thing is that he got it. He got it. Like there were Christians everywhere who said, Yes, to the Nazi policies. There were some, you may have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. There were some Christians who said, forget it. We're not about to put up with this. There cannot be this kind of alliance between Nazi Germany and the Christian faith. But you remember what happened to Bonhoeffer when he protested. When he said, no, this isn't going to be the case. And ultimately, he was killed. So there comes a time when Christians have to stand up and say, you know what, no matter what, we're going to be Christian. And in fact, to try and connect government and Christianity seems to me to be, at heart, a mistake. Maybe not a biblical mistake. Maybe not as a horrible thing as though the Bible talks about, well, we can't do this. But it's a mistake, it seems to me. And so whether it's in the Roman Empire or the United States or Nazi Germany, we need to be careful. I want to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but to God the things that are God. 
I also want to obey God rather than men, even when it looks like aligning myself with men isn't necessarily in direct conflict with allegiance to God. It could well be. And if I'm not careful about this, if I don't watch myself and the church, I may end up supporting something horrible. Do you know that in the 1860s, when the Civil War took place in the United States, there were far more people in the churches of Christ who supported the efforts of the South than there were those who supported the efforts of the North. Now just think about that for a second. Within the churches of Christ, within the religious forebears, our religious ancestors, there were actually those who supported the efforts of the South more than those who supported the efforts of the North. And you'd think that after that somehow we would have learned our lesson. But in the 1960s, not the 1860s, a hundred years after the Civil War, a hundred years after slavery was no longer allowed in the United States, the segregation within the United States in those areas where the churches of Christ were strongest was rampant. I went to an institution, Abilene Christian University. It was in the mid-1960s that ACU finally began to admit African Americans into its student body. There was a professor, Carl Spain, who stood up in 1966 at the lectures, and he said, brothers and sisters, this is wrong. We cannot continue to support this position of segregation. And the president of the university, Don Morris, fought Carl Spain and others every step of the way in trying to prevent African Americans from being part of Abilene Christian University. He eventually, of course, completely lost. And now there's a sizable number of African Americans that attend ACU and all of our schools. But it is so important that when it comes to being Christian and making Christian decisions about some of the social issues that we're faced with, that we absolutely continue to look to Scripture for guidance on how it is that we're going to carry those things out. And if there's some ideology, some policy, some way of looking at things that doesn't fit with Scripture and with the Gospel, it's these things that we have to reject and we need to stand where God wants us to stand on these kinds of social issues. And so I would rather be a William Wilberforce and do everything I could to try and stop the slave trade rather than be those who would support it. And by the way, we had many within Churches of Christ who did exactly the opposite. Alexander Campbell at one point had slaves and his own conscience moved him to release them. And you think, well, he, he had them, but everybody had them. And through his own understanding of Scripture and his own study, he decided that he needed to release them, and he did. Now, the point also this morning is that it doesn't have to be political or social ideology that sometimes controls the church. What about 
when a certain way of looking at the Christian faith and the church ends up ruling Scripture rather than Scripture ruling the way that we look at the church and our faith? And I'll put the question up there. Look at this. You tell me what the answer should be. Should what we think the church is rule our view of what is in Scripture? Or should what is in Scripture rule our view of what we think the church is? And there is probably no one in the room who's going to pick the first half and say, well, this is what we need. Everybody is going to say, we need the second half. But it's amazing how quickly we can take a different perspective on that if things aren't exactly the way we want them to be. If we have our own perception of how things should be. If we're controlled by something other than Scripture, ultimately, it is so easy for us to have perceptions of how things should be that are not exactly biblical, but we hold these things up rather than honoring Scripture and allowing Scripture to completely dominate how we think. And I want to ask the question this morning, where are you? When it comes to asking what we need to do as a church, what we need to be in light of those perceptions and attitudes around us that could shape us rather than Scripture. What is demanded by the Christian faith is the freedom to think beyond ideology so that we are first and foremost in line with what we genuinely see in the Scriptures. Every human being, every Christian needs to be reading the Bible for him and herself. And making decisions about what we believe. Not based on any kind of ideology. Other than what we absolutely see in scripture. And then this question arises. What if I see something in the scriptures. That runs contrary to what we have always thought as a church. What about when that happens? Do we have the guts to say, I believe something different? Do we have the strength to say, I'm not going to tolerate that dominating my faith. I want scripture only to dominate who I am. Because the fact is, traditions of men come in many forms. And we have to obey God rather than men. This is the case when Scripture and the Christian faith need to be set free from any ideology that we've mentioned. And when we begin to make compromises, the church must itself set itself straight. The fact is, it's a terrible thing when society leads the church into doing what's right because the church didn't see it prior to that. There are issues in which society sometimes makes a choice and the church ends up following society later because society made the choice right and the church only later realized it was right. And rather than scripture controlling us and making, helping us to make the decisions that we need to make, we let some ideology control us. And finally, the world stepped in and said, you know what? On this one, you guys are wrong. 
And only later did we look at our Bibles and say, you know what? Scripture really does tell us something different here than what we have always thought. So what will you do with a new election? How will your faith affect the decision that you make? Will you find yourself voting along ideological lines like all your friends, whether in the U.S. or in Canada, whatever election you might be voting in? And the next time that you're faced with a decision not about politics, but about doctrine, what is it that's going to control your choice? Is it going to be your own reading of the Bible? Or will it be a tradition and even a religious ideology that will prevent you from seeing what really is there in the Bible? It's only to the scriptures that we need to go and nowhere else. And we need to make sure we do. Now I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in your Bibles. We're going to close with this today. It's page 807 in your pew Bibles. First Corinthians chapter 1. And I want you to look at verse 18. What is it that controls us? What is it that dominates our thinking? What is it that helps us to be the church we need to be? And Paul gives us an answer in verse 18 and following. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Which means that there is no human ideology that should ever triumph over the message of the cross and the gospel. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And so there is never going to be any philosophical system, no political system, nothing, that can in any way rival what the power of the gospel is in our world. And we need to stand there. And to stand someplace else simply takes us out of the stream of the gospel and its power that God wants us so badly to have. I don't know what the things are that control you in terms of your thinking. But I hope that it's only the gospel that controls you. No, ide- no ideology, no tradition, 
Not even a religious tradition needs, us, needs to prevent us from seeing the, the heart of the gospel and following only the cross of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, it's so easy for us to allow other things to dominate our thinking, to move us in a certain direction, to make choices. It's so easy for, a le- for us to let other things control us other than your will and your gospel. And sometimes we do a lousy job of seeing what it is and holding to the gospel. God, forgive us in those times when some human tradition or human system, or human ideology prevents us from simply following the gospel. And God, where we need to know your word better so that we can be absolutely shaped by it and by your spirit, shape us and help us to know it better. And help us to stand only there. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.